Hello everyone, and welcome back to From the Front Row. In public health, place matters. In fact, some would say your zip code could have more influence on your health than genetic code. One, sometimes overlooked force that shapes the environment where you live is urban planning. I'm Ben Sint, joined by Anya Morozov, and if this is your first time listening, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of the College of Public Health. Today, Dr. Lucy Lorian, professor and director of the University of Iowa School of Planning and Public Affairs, is here to chat with us about urban planning and its connections to public health and more. Welcome to the show, Lucy. Before we get into the bulk of today's episode, do you mind telling us about, a bit about your background? Like, How did you get into this field of urban planning? Sure. Urban planning is an interesting field because it affects everything we do and see our roads, our buildings, our parks. And yet we, many people don't even know it's there as a field, as a profession. So I didn't know either <laughs> uh, when I grew up, like most of us. So I studied urban sociology in France and demography. And I was very interested in urban social systems, urban environments, waste, pollution, parks, and the positive and the negative side of the urban environments, and also social inequalities. So I, I came to it from a sociological perspective. And then I interned at the UN at the population division because I was a demographer. And I wasn't too sure how to integrate cities, the environment, people, equity, right? But I knew I wanted it to be in a way that affects change, that connects to action, to urban transformation. But I didn't know how to do that. And that's my advisor at the UN who said, you know, in the US, that's called urban planning, uh, which I didn't know. So I went on to get a PhD in city and regional planning at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And North Carolina is the place where the environmental justice movement was born in the 1980s. So I discovered the U.S. as a foreign student. I discovered the South. I discovered racial segregation. Uh, and I discovered the environmental justice movement all at the same time in my, in my PhD study. And so I started focusing on that aspect of the urban environment. I then took a first job at the University of Arizona, and I've been at the University of Iowa since 2004. So I came of to planning through urban sociology. Yeah, wow. So quite a journey all the way from France. <laughs> and yeah, I think public health, similar to urban planning, is another one of those fields where you don't always know about it. I guess it's more prominent today than it was probably five years ago, but it's kind of one of those invisible forces that shapes where people live. But just to give some context to folks who aren't super familiar with the term, can you give a basic definition of urban planning? Sure. And, and we call ourselves urban and regional planning in terms of the name of our master's degree. So the, the focus is on cities and the urban area, then suburbs and the rural areas as well. So we, it's not like we extract cities and only think about them. We think about cities in the context of the wider regions. So planning is a field of study and a profession, both so people can become a planner, right? That's about guiding change. So the word planning conveys the idea of planning for the future, right? So guiding change to improve the future of cities, of regions, of places, of neighborhoods, of homes, right? The scale can go all the way from the home to the global scale. And that guiding of change comes with important sets of ethics, just like public health is a field that's uh, very much focused on doing good, right? So planning also is about increasing quality of life, environmental quality, prosperity, justice, livability. The goals change if you think about, you know, from the 19th century to how we would phrase things today, what type of building, single family homes versus larger complexes, the density of housing. And with the housing, there's also affordability, homelessness, who has access to what? 
It covers transportation between highways, truck, freight, trains, ports, all the way to bicycle pedestrian infrastructure. Obviously, most of the budgets in these recent decades were for cars, but that's changing too. It covers economic development, how to bring jobs to regions, good jobs. So it's a field that is about changing or guiding change for the future of cities and regions. It's also a very comprehensive field of nature. So we look at cities as places, land use, and that, I mean, growth, sprawl, environmental protection, protection of farmland, of ecosystems of soils. It covers housing, who lives where, how to support startups and create these ecosystems that are good for job creation. It covers public finance. This how do you support the public investments, whether that's your city, fire, but also new parks, new bridges, right? So we have to fund all that. The public finance is also relevant for us. It covers neighborhoods, communities, food access, access to what everybody needs on a daily life basis. So neighborhood services, the sense of identity of communities, right? That matters as well for neighborhoods, community identity, sense of pride, sense of place. And the environment, toxic, all the way from toxic to parks and flowers, right? A noise, lights, that's also in the realm of planning. So it covers a lot of components, right, of what makes our urban life. So it's the very comprehensive field that is about changing and guiding the change for places. I think that would be the best definition, but if usually when we tell our grandmothers what we do, we say it's transportation, housing, right? We, we go to the substance. But I think the most important part of the idea of the field is about guiding positive change in the world. So in urban planning, a lot of things you just described are very tangible, you know, like transportation, environmental things, but a lot of people don't think of it straight up as public health. So do you know, like have an idea of like the history of like how urban planning met public, with public health and now are like two in the one and Two separate things with the same thing, you know? It's actually really interesting. So planning, in a way, was born from public health, right? But public health before the focus on vaccination. So cities were always planned, right? So the Mayan cities, the Roman cities, Greek cities had a plan. They were on a grid, for example. So the idea of laying out a city that, that's not necessarily new or connected to public health. And Romans were bringing clean water into their city. So they were doing things for public health. But that's before the idea of planning really came along. The 19th century is that moment where public health that's been doing great work for centuries, millennia, right, in different ways, like the theories of disease change, right? But in the 19th century, there's a key moment when Europe is suffering from cholera epidemics, plagues, typhoid, right? And in England, in Germany, in France, some of the public health practitioners start connecting living conditions and the spread of disease. So they're starting to map, like, where are people dying of cholera, of typhoid, right? And they start identifying that the more stagnating water, the more waste you have, the more it smells bad in the neighborhood, the more there's disease. And that gave rise to the, the filth or the miasma fear of disease. We know now it's wrong, like, disease doesn't come through the air through bad smell. But that's the moment where public health practitioners, doctors, right, connect environmental quality with health. And so they're starting to collect data in a very comprehensive manner, very systematic. They do surveys, building by building, right? And towards the end of the 19th century, the germ theory of disease replaced mitma theory, right? So now they know that there's something in the water. They're testing wells, right? So we're in the 1850s. You may have seen the John Snow maps. They're fascinating. He goes house by house, makes a map of how many people died in that house, in that building. And they find that those who share the most death also share the same water pumps. Right. So that moment of going from this is about the smell 
to this as about something in the water, which they can't describe yet. They, they can't see bacteria or viruses yet, right? But that's the moment where public health and planning emerge together, right? So, so theory change, understanding of health change, but that moment never disappears. The sense that we need a clean, good air, good water, maybe good soils, although soils tend to be underestimated, to have a healthy population. That's, that starts in the 1850s. So that's our birth as a, as a profession, right? And the first planners were doctors, right? So they're public health professionals, that, which at the time were doctors, were asked, you know, can you put together comprehensive plans? Say the one from Memphis that looked at water quality, having windows in every building, building codes change to bring light. Yeah, they don't necessarily understand why sunshine helps, but, but these first codes for building and tenement you know, the conditions of life in these crowded tenement buildings on the East Coast were dramatic and they knew it was not healthy. So they're starting to look at building codes. They're starting to look at water, air quality. They talk about building parks because they're the lungs of the city, right? So even if the science wasn't as it is now, that moment really never went away. So the profession starts together at that moment, the modern public health and modern planning arise together. And then once public health started working on vaccinations and, and really focusing all the public health effort on vaccination, then the built environment mattered less, right? And the focus was just vaccinate the population. So the, the big mass production of lab vaccines was the late 1880s or so. So at that moment, I would say the profession split, right? And really didn't talk to each other very much until 2000, 2004, five, where they came back and they came back around the obesity epidemic. So we have a, a series of papers about a sprawl makes you obese, right? People are not physically active. They go from car to garage to bed to car, right? Even in between the garage and the workplace is not much working. And so those studies came out, came out in 2004 and made the national news. I mean, we start to realize the importance of physical activity and how the built environment discourages that. It makes it even impossible sometimes. So that's the moment where I think the, the two fields come back. That's say 2000-ish, right? Another important development where we're still together. So I think the fields are closer together than they were, you know, maybe 50 years ago, but they were already close in the 19th century. Another area of overlap, I think, is on urban heat island effect and the impact of heat waves on population. More people die in heat waves than most disasters in the U.S., right? Even floods and tornadoes, right? So who gets affected by the heat waves, whether it's in Chicago, in Portland, I mean, the income differentials, racial differentials, and in impacts, you know, heat waves impact elderly people. They impact people who have um, some disadvantages, may not have air conditioning, for example, or already have heart sensitivities. So more people die in some neighborhoods than others. But if you look at the maps, it's actually neighborhoods that don't have trees, that are much hotter, that have more asphalt than near industrial zones, right? So I think that's another area that's of emerging overlap between the two fields. So you may have seen that in Portland. When is it? Last year? So summer of 2021, I believe. They reached 116 degrees in Portland, Oregon. Right. Very unusual in the Northwest. And the temperature differences between neighborhoods. And so for Portland, that means between the south part of town and the areas that are close to the highway were something like. 15 degrees, 10 to 15 degree difference between wealthy and poor neighborhoods. And so, of course, that triggers more studies, right? How can that happen? Um, That's not the first time the Chicago v 95 had the same. I think more than 700 people died and and half of those were Black, right? 
So, so the differential by neighborhood becomes obvious since, since the mid nineties and now it's, it's in the news like every other summer. So, so I think public health is also starting to look at green spaces, trees, water bodies for cooling. It's simple as that. Um, so I, I think we have more overlap that we're more aware of now than we were years ago. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm in a social epidemiology course right now, and we actually read an article about heat waves and the large number of deaths from heat waves. And it was actually a really surprising thing because, you know, like with a flood or something, there's a lot of very kind of physical effects that you can see, but like with a heat wave, there's no like damage to infrastructure really. Um, But you do still see a large number of deaths. And so it's kind of this like invisible thing that causes mortality that um, again, like urban planning and like a lot of different aspects of public health, you wouldn't necessarily think about um, as you're just going about your day-to-day life. Exactly. And and for every death, which is terrible and a great loss, there's thousands of people who suffer, Mm -hmm. right? Not die, right? But who are suffering and maybe are not working at their you know, they have a hard time working, they have a hard time taking care of their, their children. I mean, the, 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 it's not just the death, which is a tip of the iceberg, but the, the, the pain that comes from living in these extremely hot, especially when it's humid or extremely hot neighborhoods where, you know, you become sort of paralyzed and stuck in your home. And that's very different across races. So the, the inequality that I think are striking at those moments, what does it mean if you're wealthy on the north coast of Chicago versus you're in the south side, that heat wave will not affect you in the same way. So some of your work focuses on urban forestry, which I think you've kind of discussed a little bit with talking about heat waves. So can you tell us a little more about like what urban forestry is and how that impacts health? Uh-huh, sure. Uh, urban forestry is, is I mean, it's simple. It's the management of urban trees. That's all it is, right? But it, it can mean really different things to different people. So it's the trees on the street. Right, the street trees that we come have come to expect along the sidewalk, neatly arranged, you know, like columns. It's also the trees in parks. And if we think about Iowa City, we have sort of um, parks that are mainly along with a few large trees, like a savanna type of ecosystem where you can see really far. But we also have woodlands. All that comes under forestry, and the trees on private lands, right? Our backyards, our front yards, which are privately owned, privately managed. So if everybody wants maples, like there's nothing to prevent people from putting more maples, even though we don't really need more, right? So forestry covers all the trees, whether they're public, private, and within the public realm, whether they are sort of carefully managed, one big oak in a big lawn, or a wilder type of environments, like in Korea Hill or Ryerson Woods, which is a state forest preserve. So I'm not a forester by training, but I'm very interested in how trees contribute to our streetscape. I'm more interested in that than parks. Parks are wonderful, but the, the streetscape for me, is that's what we see every day. That's the nature we see when we come out of our house, right? Or out of our apartments. And so I'm interested in the contribution of trees to the street, especially. Yeah. So obviously you want more trees, you know, in our front yards, decrease heat, better looking. Is there any other like big Ticket things you're trying to work on to improve cities or regional areas right now? Yeah, the, again, I'm, I'm thinking about st- street trees or sidewalk trees for the most part. You should go back in your mind. When did we start putting trees on our street? There are plenty of countries that don't have trees on the street. It's just a, a model. It's not the only model. We tend to think of the Haussmann tree line boulevards in Paris in the second half or middle of the 19th century. But it goes much further back. 
So we have been planting trees in streets since the 14th century in Europe, right? At first, it was only for the rich, only for the king, only for strolling in the beautiful horse carriage for the wealthy, right? And over time, that's become an expectation and a norm for every neighborhood to have trees, right? So it, it's changed how we think of the city. So our perception of what's a good place has dramatically changed. I think in the couple of centuries, what we think is a good city. And they're important design elements are the aesthetic, right, of a ceiling to the street or providing a self-buffer between the pedestrian hard lines of the building, especially in large cities. The canopies, if they meet above the street, can be like almost like an archway of cathedral ceilings. But they also provide a lot of environmental services, right? So the shade, bird habitats, roots for insects, reduce your conditioning needs, cut the wind. I mean, farmers have known that for a long time, right? They put trees on the windy side of the, their house. They sequester carbon some, but that's very minimal. They infiltrate stormwater much more than we think. A mature tree can take up to 4,000 gallons a year. That's a lot of water that's going to be infiltrated and filtered before it runs off on your streets, before it goes to your parking lot, before it goes to the stream. And so if we think about water quality from urban areas, those trees do a lot of work in stormwater management when filtration as well. Now, not all trees are created equal, right? And an oak can host I'm not sure, several hundred types of caterpillars and bugs, which become food for birds. The ginkgo is like a plastic tree, right? Because in, in our habitat here, ginkgos are not eaten by anything. So what kind of tree we put and how much we diversify that forest is essential. And foresters now know that. But foresters 50 years ago were looking for a very homogeneous look, something that grows fast, that looks pretty and that has the right shape. And, and it particularly that looks very homogeneous across the whole street. Well, so Dutch elm disease takes all the elms, the elm root ash borer takes all the ash. And the risks are tremendous to our streetscapes, right? If we start losing trees in mass because they're not diverse, then, then our expectation of a good place is challenged, right? Then we don't have the nice neighborhood we're looking for. So I'm interested in how poor shows have been diversifying. And it's not easy to diversify something that lives 80 years, 100 years. Sometimes more, right? So I think there's a lot of interesting pieces around trees. They're living beings, but they're objects. But we're attached to them as because they're living. And yet we make human choices, you know, that we treat them like objects. We don't let them reproduce. I mean, a, a tree on the sidewalk will not have children, if that's the right word. Because if there's a little sapling, we'll cut it off because we move around them, right? So they're neither really nature nor really objects. I find that very, very interesting. And then I get a bit worried that because we manage trees really well and they're pretty and they look healthy and we water them, hopefully, right, they're fine. We tend to think that nature is okay. Like it sends the message, right, to the pedestrian that nature is fine. And nature is not fine. In the, in the Anthropocene, nature is not fine. Right, we're in the middle of a massive max extinction. But you wouldn't know this if you were just strolling downtown and looking at these trees. So I think there's something interesting about that tension as well of a, a well-managed, manicured, healthy form of nature that's very controlled that gives us the impression that things are all right when they're not all right. So I find all those components very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So just being in a city, it's a very like controlled environment that doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on in, in a lot of the world. Another point you made that stuck out to me was your point about how people will plant trees and then they'll be there for like hundreds of years, potentially. And I think that's true of a lot of urban planning and is probably a challenge. Just the fact that like anything you put in place today, 
you're, you're going to want to be there for a while. Hopefully it takes a lot of investment. So I guess that that was just something that stuck out to me in, when I think about urban planning. It's true of buildings. It's true of roads. I mean, room and road layouts are still there. They may have been covered and the stones are gone or they're covered under layers of asphalt, but, but the layouts are still there. So we're dealing with very permanent things. And that means that most of our housing stock's already built. And if it's not energy efficient, then the retrofit is extremely costly because we're looking at old housing stock. So it has implications on, on many things, right? When we build sprawl and we build houses that are made of wood, you could imagine that if we were, you know, I don't know, in another era, but these would return to the land, maybe. But the concrete foundations will not go away. So mm-hmm. we're looking and uh, quasi-permanent structures and everything we do. So the implications are tremendous. We can add bike lanes and remote, you know, like some things can be changed. But but planning deals with, with very, very long-term decisions, both in the future and in the past, where we live with the dependencies of our ancestors, good or bad, right? And then we also have impact that will be long-lasting, which is exciting and, and scary and humbling as well. Yeah. So I guess going off of that, knowing what you know about urban planning and maybe like connecting it to like how it can make people healthy or unhealthy, if you could change three things about how we design cities, what would they be and why? About the design. You know, what's interesting is that you you started saying your zip code impacts your health more than anything else. That's true. But it's not because of design questions. It's because of racial segregation in the U.S. And so in a way, I, I don't think my first solution would be a design issue. It would be trying to undo several centuries of racial separations and segregation and, and under or disinvestments from city centers and isolation of communities that are at the most vulnerable, mainly African-American communities, but also Native American communities that have been displaced historically and are struggling to this day after even several hundred years of displacement, right? So that's not something that can be fixed by design, but we can increase the availability of affordable housing throughout a city, right? So if we're trying to desegregate a town because we know that everybody needs to have access to a healthy home and has true to have access to the whole of the city, it should not be forced, right, financially or because of previous racially motivated laws should be forced in some neighborhoods over others. Then I think what we can do is start increasing the construction of affordable quality housing throughout cities, including in those that were historically single family homes. And that's hard. Politically, it's hard because people want to keep the character of their neighborhood or maybe they want to keep it white in some cases, but it's possible. And there's, there are good examples out there. There's a, a book called Retrofitting Suburbia that talks about how to transform an existing suburb and make it livable, lockable, et cetera. But then it depends at what price point you put the new housing there, right? Is it affordable or not? There's also a good example in Minneapolis right now where they're allowing for additional units on all lots. So basically, if we say in every single family lot, right, single family home lot, you can add another unit. It could be an apartment with a garage. It could be a split house. It could be a duplex, right? But you just allow that one extra unit. You can double density and provide plenty of housing throughout, not in some segregated parts of town, not in apartment complexes or only the apartment complexes or affordable housing will only be at the edge of town. 
near the industrial zone, near the railroad track. We need to move away from that and provide inclusive housing opportunities. So that's about quality and cost, and it has to be dispersed. I think that's the first thing to do to reduce health equities by race is to undo the effect of redlining and, and unfair lending practices that were fairly common between the 1920s and 70s. It, it's illegal since the Fair Housing Act, but some of it has continued. We still live in cities where the zones that were mapped as red or dangerous or at risk financially were a zone that had more African Americans. And there's still today the zones that have more African Americans. And there's still today the zones where people don't own their home. So they can't build wealth. They can pass on equity to their children. It also means they have, the schools are less well-funded in those areas, right? If we fund schools with property values, then the areas or the cities with low property values, the school districts with low property values will have less funding for their schools. So, so desegregating on a large scale, I think, has to be first. So it's not really a design feature, but I think that that has to be a priority. Mm-hmm. Yes, three things. The next thing I think would be walkability. Bikeability, that's more design, like making cities walkable and bikeable for everyone, right? I mean, that I think that that would be wonderful if we had the option to walk or bike to everywhere we need to go. Some people talk about the 15-minute neighborhood. We can walk everywhere in 15 minutes. You know, if, if I was safe to walk or bike, maybe we could walk 20 minutes, right? But the point is making cities pedestrian-friendly and safe pedestrians. That's good for health. It's good for walking, for physical activity. It's also good for kids. It's better for teenagers. They can get, get away on their own without having to be driven by their parents to get everywhere, right? So if you're between 13 and 16, it's better if you can walk around to your friend's house, to your downtown, wherever you need to go, right? Walking to affordable grocery stores that are not high-end downtown, right? So that would be walkability and bikeability. That comes with density, comes with some investments, and I think political will to replace lanes for cars by lanes for bikes. I mean, some of that is who's claiming the right to the street space. And at the end of the day, there are planners and politicians that will have to make those hard decisions because you're displacing cars, right? I think, I think maybe your criteria would be, you know, that, that about a third of our trips are less than a mile that we take by car, right? So let's say every trip less than a mile should be walking or biking. That seems feasible, less than a mile, right? And then the third, I think I would dramatically increase planting of native species, trees, shrubs, grasses, forbs, flowers, to support pollinators, birds. They need it because, especially in Iowa, right, there's not a lot of native habitat left in the state, a fraction of a percent, right, of prairie. That would also have the benefit of restoring the soils, including increasing infiltration of stormwater, which is beautiful. So replacing asphalt by native species of all sorts alongside rocks, front yard and public land in our backyards, you know, parts of the park could be more prairie. We still, I mean, Iowa City is doing a good job. There's plenty of prairie and parks, but maybe we could do more. I think that would be my third intervention. Yeah. Sometimes I'll see people with like the, their backyard is a prairie and it's like, you know, why not do that instead of just the regular lawn grass? And I'll challenge you, why not the front yard? Why should it be hidden in the back? Right. And I think the answer is like the perception of the front yard needs to be trimmed. They need to be a lawn. It's the good neighbor, right? You're, you take good care of your, of your yard. So you're a good citizen. And that, that's a very British model of how we control nature. 
but maybe that should be in the front yard, not in the back, right? If we really value prairie, let's put it and let's enjoy it and compare each other's yard for how many beautiful species you get and how many incredible species of birds you're seeing on your, on your flowers, right? I, I, I challenge you to think about front yards even, or yeah. maybe, you know, on the, along the street. And again, Iowa City has quite a few, if you go in front of the city hall, there is native plants right there. So we have some of that, but we could, we could do much more in other cities as well. Yeah. So we've done a lot of talking about urban planning, but obviously it's urban planning and regional planning. And we live in Iowa. I wouldn't argue Iowa City or Des Moines are, you know, the most urban places in the world. But so what can we do? What is there being done? What research? What, what does urban regional planning look like for rural, small, Midwestern Iowa? So yeah, it's, it's urban regional planning. We think about regions. There's two pieces to living in rural areas, right? There's the farmland itself. And I think farmland, I mean, it, there's woodlands and others as well. But now it's mainly farmland. So how do we protect that agricultural land from suburban growth, potentially, right? So farmland protection is important. But there's also protecting farmland in terms of how the farming practices impact the water quality. How do we treat the land? Now, I'd say urban planning has very little power over this because it's a state decision, right? Regulation of all things agricultural uh, are done at the state level. But it's different in other states and different in other countries. So, you know, there are countries where you cannot grow crops or have cattle in streams or anywhere in the, you know, know, within three yards of a stream. So these would be more regulatory than, than local planning processes, but they'd be very important ways of, of increasing or improving water quality that has to do with how we manage the land. So we have ag land protection, natural areas protection, right? So do we have prairie? Who, where can we protect that? Are they remnants? Do we rebuild the prairie? That's done by the state, is done by land trusts and private landowners, right? Then there's watershed planning, which is really hard. But very important to rural areas, watersheds don't follow municipal boundaries or even county boundaries. We have very strange shapes. Can you briefly say like what a watershed is? A watershed is all the upstream rivers or small streams that go into one larger one. So at a big scale, we're in the Mississippi watershed, right? All our rain goes down the Mississippi. Every drop of rain that comes in our house will make its way down to New Orleans, right? And because we're in that part of the country that's in the Mississippi watershed. Within that large, you know, half the country scale watershed, right? There are smaller watersheds. So every stream flows into another river that's larger, like that layered map. So the watershed is inside a bigger one, inside a bigger one. So there's different levels. But it's basically, if you think about the Yellow River and Iowa City, the water quality that we see when we look down a bridge depends on everything upstream of us. Well, that's the watershed. It's everything that flows to that point that we see, right? So if you want to plan for better water quality, you need to think at a watershed level. And that involves multiple counties working together and all their cities and all their landowners. So at that, at that level, planning becomes about sort of bringing people together towards the one goal of getting water quality to improve or flooding to reduce, right? And so that's a lot of agricultural land and urban as well, like in our case. So why do we have so many sediment? Why doesn't the water run clear? Wait, well, because a lot of sediment, some contaminants as well. Some of it is cities, contribution, parking lot, runoff after rain, you know, wastewater plant. Sometimes they overflow and that happens, right? 
but the bulk of it in Iowa is rural because most of our lands are rural. So how we manage water quality in rural areas, that's about farmland. It's about large scale confined animal feeding operations. So you have thousands of chickens in one building, right? Well, the waste has to go somewhere. Hopefully it's well managed, but if there's a flood, it could overflow. And if it's too close to a stream, it could take that waste into the stream. So that's part of managing farmland, right? There is also wind turbines. They go on farmland, right? How do we place them? Who gets to have them on the land? Is the utility placing them in agreement with farmers? What kind of deals? They're making one-on-one. These are private sector deals. Many planners actually are identifying what are good places for wind turbine. What would be a good place? What's a place to avoid to protect the landscape or a view, right? Fracking some part of the country could be a rural planning issue. How do you regulate fracking? or not regulate sometimes. So all these are, are rural issues that planning is involved with, right? At the local level, the county level, the state level as well. If we think of the intersect between cities and rural areas, we think about the suburbs, right? So the suburb may grow straight straight out of the city. Maybe it just expands a little bit and you see a continuation of a road or the sewer water and just extended. Sometimes urban growth skips. It goes over a couple of fields and then resettle. That's called exurban development. So those are, you know, again, there's been a pro. There's a, there's a subdivision permit. There's a building permit for people to live in the rural area who commute into town. So you have impact on roads and how much traffic there is on these small rural roads that may not have been built with that traffic. So there's plenty of things going on in rural areas that, that need planning support. That's the land. There's also a lot of small towns. In rural areas, right? I mean, people still go shopping and look for stores and what they need and feeds and interactions and go to the restaurant in small town. Iowa has about something like a thousand towns. Three-fourths are under 1,000 people. They're very small towns, right? And they also need housing, public service, parks, police, water, water, sewer, treatment, utilities, hospitals, like health. The same thing a big city needs. Like you still need to have that in town. So planning for small towns is very challenging because their resources are not always there, right? So their tax base is smaller. And they also need to be a good place for the residents, for teenagers, for elderly, for everybody who lives there. So the resource challenge is quite different in a town of 500 than in a town of 50,000, right? And this is also rural planning. So there's a lot of work that goes on in Iowa in, in rural areas. And, and some sub, the support sources may be different. Like the USDA will fund some work. We have the Main Street program. The state supports small towns, right? But they're regulated. You know, there's stormwater. This charge is regulated just like a big city would be. They need to meet standards when they release waste into water bodies. And so they have to upgrade their systems. They also rely on their tax base, which often is shrinking. Um, so the challenges are, are quite different and they still are great places to be. So that work is almost like an urban planning work, but in different contexts. I've really enjoyed kind of throughout this conversation, I see so many parallels between the work of urban planning and the work of public health, just from like the interdisciplinary nature of it, where it touches a lot of different aspects of life in a community. The fact that you with that interdisciplinariness comes all these different stakeholders that you have to consider when deciding to make one choice or another. And then even specifically to Iowa, that challenge of like small towns. And I know like health departments 
or public health agencies in Iowa City versus a, a small town in Iowa are going to look a lot different and still have to do the same kind of basic public health services. But anyway, I think we're going to wrap up with one last question. And this is a question we ask to all of our guests who come on the podcast. What was one thing you thought you knew, but were later wrong about? That's a good question. I, okay, to be honest, I thought everybody thought like me and I learned they don't, right? Which is that life lesson, right? So I thought that surely people must really not like those tube colored, cookie cutter suburbans neighborhoods that don't really look like neighborhoods. All you see is a big garage door. Nobody uses their front door. There's really no one on the front porch because people drive straight into their garage. And it took me a while to understand that it's actually really appealing. And it is, there's a reason people live in suburbs, right? There's a reason that the autonomy and convenience that comes with doing everything by car, providing there's parking when you get somewhere, right? But there's a reason that a lot of folks are very comfortable being completely dependent on the car. I'm not, but I can see better now that for many people, it is a very nice thing, the very positive aspect of, of life. And it's associated with freedom and with convenience, a very positive attribute. I've come to see that inside those homes are wonderful homes. It's not just a building that looks like every other one, which from the outside to me looks very, I don't know, disturbing, too similar, like a character, right? But inside it's wonderful. Inside is a home, inside is a family that installed their rooms however they saw fit and their furniture and, and their family heirlooms. And so the, the, the identity, the sense of place is inside. It took me a while because I expect the outside to match the inside, right? We can, I am from Paris and I live in a, here in a historic area. The outside of the building sort of tell you something about the inside. That's not always the case in suburbia. Um, but I've come to understand that, no, the inside is really lovely. <laughs> and that deep-rooted American ideal of raising family in the suburb has a lot of appeal, but it took me a long time to figure out what was appealing about that. But it is, and, and everybody wants what's best for their kid, and the schools are better in the suburbs, because historically, white people have and rich people have moved to suburbs. Well, then it makes sense that the one continue to be there. I mean, the, right, the American ethos is built around the suburban lifestyle since, not forever, since just since the 50s, right? So I understand sprawl is terrible for the environment. It doesn't pay for itself, it pollutes a lot of paved areas. We lose farmland. I mean, all these things are still there. But I think I've come to better understand why, why there really is demand for suburban housing. That is sincere and a genuine market demand for a way of life. That took me a while being born and raised in Paris. It's a very big um, shift for me to understand the desire for suburban life, but it is, it is a wonderful life too. We can be, right? So that, that took me a while to turn my head around that, <laughs> if that makes Yeah. Well, thank you for, for sharing that perspective and kind of that open-mindedness that you had to find as you learned about suburbia. And yeah, I think we all experience that to some extent or another, especially again, when we're working with an entire community and you've only had like one lived experience, um, there's a lot to learn. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There's one piece we haven't talked about that I think is important, but it didn't really fit into any of your questions. Mm -hmm. But if you think about, I'm going back to what you said, your zip code matters more for your health, your health and your body or your DNA. Your zip code 
And I mentioned earlier the, the topic of racial segregation. The way it came to be is because of what people in government did. It's not just racist homeowners, right? So we had the Federal Housing Administration that gave loans primarily to whites and that denied black backlinks to mortgage financing. We've had, you know, there's a long history of inequities in housing that are the results. I mean, the bill is passed by a, by a president, right? But, but it is implemented at local level by planner. So as a field, we have to reckon with um, our ancestors, right, who did things that were disadvantaging minorities. And that, that didn't stop in 68. I mean, right. So, so the black home ownership, Latino home ownership has never really recovered. And that's not just because some individuals did the wrong thing. It's because government passed laws that were designed to do that. And so it's hard, it's hard to look at your own field and your own references and say, well, you know, there's really, really bad work that was done. It's terrible. Putting highways straight through black neighborhoods that were thriving. And so it's interesting for a discipline to have to reckon with its own path. And I think public health has that too. And, you know, what experiments have we done in medicine, right? I think it's, it's true in, in architecture and in many other educations for sure, right? But in the planning aspect, the discrepancy in life expectancy that we see so in Chicago is a life expectancy gap between South Side and North Side, right? This is because of some things we did as a profession, right? That the exclusion of, of Blacks from some areas and, and from homeownership. So I, I think we need to be very thoughtful of the potentially dramatic impact of our action on the environment, on people, on inequity. So I, if anything is tumbling, I think it's the, the dramatic discrepancies in health that we see now, like life expectancy, there's nothing more important than how many years on earth we have, right? I mean, if anything is unfair, that's it, like, right? So you, at birth, you already know we have fewer years to spend on earth. I don't, I can't think of anything more inequitable than that. And that's because of how we've located people when I mean, we're at housing and where and who had access to buying and build wealth and who didn't. So I'm sure you, you, know, you think about income when you're in, in public health. Income and, and wealth are different. I mean, income differentials by race are important by gender as well. But the wealth that you built to your home, right? I think the wealth for Blacks on average for a household is 94000 and it's 200 plus thousand for whites on average, right? And that's just home debt minus the debt. Like, so what, what, your, what your complete total wealth minus your debt would be on your home. And so we have to kind of connect the dots here. But not, not just the past is over already and moving on, but it has tremendous impact on public health today because of those inequalities we built in and really baked in in our 50s, right? So that's, you know, yeah, I wanted to add that because that's really important to that gap by zip code. It's mainly a story of race, right? And, and income print. Yeah, thank you. It, it is, it's very important to acknowledge the history and the racism that has happened in this country and continues to perpetuate today, because as you mentioned, it, it's, it's impacted by choices that were made in the field of public health and the field of urban planning. And if we don't really recognize it and think about it, then we might end up repeating the same things in the future, which is not an option. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or perhaps dependencies just continue unchecked and we don't repair, right? So we, we don't address the past. So we, it, it, it's hard to do. It's very difficult. It's so ingrained. And, and 
Yeah. And like you said, things last hundreds of years in the built environment. Ownership can change a bit more quickly, but, but like wealth transmission from a generation to the next, whether we inherit the home from our parents, for example, we don't. I mean, that, that takes generations to, to change. The very, the very, very long term planning, I think, is essential to keep in mind. And so that's why, that's why I love planning as a field. It's like we are forced to think long term, not just in five years, but what happened in 50 and 100, right? Which is exciting. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's all the time we have. I have a class in two minutes. But thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And I, I really enjoyed our conversation. You've covered so much about the world of urban planning that I didn't know before and and left us with some really important things to think about going forward. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And that's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Dr. Lucy Lorian for coming on with us today. This episode was hosted by Ben Sint and Anya Morozov and written, edited, and produced by Anya Morozov. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook, and our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.